0: page 217 chapter 25 the 6 i was in danger wake up i opened my eyes the window within view told me it was still dark out i was lying on something my sides didn't ache like they had for so many nights before i wasn't on the hard ground or the wiggly hammock i was on a bed i closed my eyes and opened them again am i dreaming Before I moved, I tried to consciously connect with each of my senses. From the looks of the room, I was in a cottage, my father's cottage. My body felt warm. A blanket covered me. On the floor next to the bed, I saw my boots and socks, which still carried the bloodstains from my blisters. I wiggled my toes under the blankets, feeling the soft material of the sheets that I laid on. I sniffed the air. There was still a faint scent that was very familiar to me, but I couldn't figure out how I recognized it. "'A sweeter smell overwhelmed it. "'I turned my face into the pillow. "'I sniffed the pillowcase. "'It smelled lovely and clean, but it wasn't the scent I smelled. "'I wondered whether I should move or not. "'If I was in danger here, I didn't want to make a noise. "'The element of surprise may be my only defense at this point. "'Zale. Had Zale followed us? "'Does he know that I'm in danger? "'Cinder knew, but she couldn't pass over the ambit crossing for some reason. "'There was no hope that she might swoop in.' I'm so stupid. I carefully rolled onto my back. If anyone checked on me, I could still pretend to be sleeping. As I rolled over, I felt a lump behind me. A lump. My lumpy little girl. Now I recognized the smells that sweetened my senses. It was Isla. I twisted my body around to see her. She was fast asleep, undisturbed by my movements. She was beautiful. She slept on her back with her hand next to her face, palm side up. I examined her. She looked peaceful and serene. She was healthy. I felt relief to see her safe. She had grown since I'd seen her last. She was becoming a young woman before my very eyes. Her fingers and hands were more mature than I remembered. Her nails were cut short, just like mine. I inhaled her scent, afraid to touch her. I didn't know what she would do if she found me next to her, so I just lingered with her breathing in her presence. I imagined waking in the moment and having breakfast with her as we used to. I would make us oatmeal with cranberries, her favorite breakfast. I allowed myself this daydream, knowing it wouldn't come true today, but hoping for it to be a reality in the future. I lay with her for a long time. At one point, I heard the wood floor creak outside the bedroom as someone approached to check on us. I closed my eyes and pretended to sleep. My guard left the room, closing the door almost completely. Only a crack of light illuminated the room. I wiggled out of the bed carefully and slipped on my socks and boots. I searched for my satchel and found it hung neatly over the back of the wood chair in the corner. I came here for a reason. While I didn't know what Eamon had come for, I had one mission in mind. I wanted Isla to know I was here for her. From my satchel, I pulled the Bible out. I quickly slid it under her pillow, hoping that when she found it in the morning, she would know who had returned it to her. I trusted that Seth wouldn't mind my returning it to her instead of him, Somehow, I knew he'd be okay with it. Next, I searched my satchel for something that I could use to protect myself. I found a fork, which I figured was better than nothing. Where should I hide it? First, I rolled down the sleeve of my shirt and tucked the fork up it. I thought twice about how obvious that might be. I thought about hiding it at my ankle, but Eamon knew I liked to hide weapons there. The only other place I could think of was the nest of hair on top of my head. My hair was so dirty and snarled from the days before I could have hidden cinder there. I let my hair down and then twisted it up again, using the fork to hold it in place. I figured it wouldn't be obvious, but it would be accessible if necessary. I strapped my satchel across my chest and took a deep breath. Before I stepped toward the door, I took a moment to pray. Be with her. Be with me. Please, just be. I took another deep breath and tiptoed toward the door. As I approached, the burning smell filled my nostrils again. In a flash, it came back to me. I knew the smell to come from the white sticks that Maris loved to smoke. Maris. Rutherford said Maris was dead. Was that a lie? Maybe? I stepped toward the door and pushed it open gently. It creaked as it swung back. I stepped out into the main quarters of my father's cottage. The dining table in the middle of the cottage had enough room around it for eight chairs. Six of them were full. I didn't say a word. I just walked out into the main room and pulled the bedroom door closed behind me. Eamon stood from the table. He pulled a chair out for me. I looked at each man at the table, memorizing their faces. Then I stepped toward them. My father rose out of his seat and approached me. He placed one hand on each side of me and looked at my eyes. You're safe here. Come sit down. We have a lot to talk about. I didn't react to him at all. I didn't smile or nod. I didn't speak or acknowledge. I just stared at him. He lingered for a moment, holding me. He released when he realized I had no interest in an embrace. I didn't understand what was going on. I wasn't about to let my guard down for a second. I approached the table. The chair that Eamon had pulled out for me was next to him. I looked at it and then at him. He smiled nervously at me. I didn't return the gesture. Instead, I pulled out the only other empty chair from the table and sat down. Sure enough, Maris was there. He sat alive and well at the table across from me. He was just as I remembered him, white stick hanging from his lips and all. He smiled at me. Lies. All lies. Boy, oh boy, I bet you're more nervous than a long-tailed dog in a room full of rocking chairs. Maris chuckled at his own joke. No one else laughed. Tension hung in the air like a thick, dark rain cloud waiting to pour on me. I studied each man at the table. I knew all of them but one. My father, Maris, and Eamon were there with Rutherford. Joining them was Jonathan, the man I knew from the guiding authority. The sixth man was small in stature. His face was sharp and with pointy features. On the end of his nose balanced a tiny pair of spectacles. His dark eyes were beady and narrow. His hair was parted and combed neatly to one side. He smiled at me kindly. Hello, Brit, I'm Levi. I didn't respond. "'We know you got a whole lot of questions. "'We don't have much time, so if you can just hear us out, "'we'll tell you all we can,' Rutherford said. "'I've got nothing but time,' I said, staring at them through narrowed eyes. "'So please,' I motioned for them to spill their thoughts on the table, "'I'd love to know what the heck is going on here.' "'I felt betrayed by every person at the table, blindsided. "'Hours ago, I was sure that Maris was dead. "'Rutherford was the enemy.' My father and Jonathan were clueless and that Eamon was my friend. I had trusted him enough to lead me into a trap away from cinder and safety under the pretenses that I was getting my daughter back. I felt duped and it made my blood boil. Rutherford looked to my father and nodded his head. I guess I should start, my father said nervously as he cleared his throat and swallowed hard. His hands were folded together on top of the table in front of him. He fiddled with his left ring finger. Well... First off, you're safe here with us. You don't need to worry about that. He studied my face for some sort of relief. I wasn't relieved. Distrust will do that to you. He took a deep breath and then started. I remember where I was when I learned that the mill immunizations were killing people. I was at the bakery down the road from our apartment, picking up red velvet cupcakes for your mother. He smiled at the memory this produced, but it immediately faded. She craved them a lot toward the end of her pregnancy with you. In the weeks prior, a virus, unlike one that we'd ever seen, was spreading like wildfire across the globe. Thousands of people were being forced into quarantine protocols in order to contain it. But it was on that day, as I stood in the bakery line, that news broke that the virus had been linked back to the mill immunization. In just a matter of days, the number of sudden casualties jumped from thousands to hundreds of thousands, then millions. My father stopped to wipe a bead of sweat from his forehead. No one in the shop spoke. We all just stopped and listened as the news anchor said that our nation was going into lockdown. Flights in and out of the country were canceled. Our borders were shut down. They encouraged everyone to go home and stay there. I remember her saying that the television channel was going off the air until further notice as they, too, were going home to be with their families. I thought that was it. I thought it was the end. I looked around the table at at the faces of the men listening. All of them, with the exception of Levi, hung their heads while my father spoke. Levi just stared at me. When the news broadcast was over, the baker reached up and turned the television off. Then, without saying a word, she emptied the baked goods from her glass display, handing each of her customers something to take home with them. Without thinking, I reached into my pocket to pull out cash to pay her, as though money even mattered at that point. But she stopped me. Instead, with tears in her eyes, she handed me a box with three red velvet cupcakes. One for your mother, and one for each of your—he hesitated for a second—sisters. My father took a deep breath. She knew, like we all did, that it didn't look good. But she was the only one in the shop that knew I was a doctor— I was her doctor, actually. She'd been a patient of mine for years, her and her children. I'd given them the immunization that year. But instead of hating me, she gave me cupcakes. He half smiled at the idea of the baker like he didn't understand her kindness. He wiped away another drop of liquid from his cheek. I was sure this one wasn't sweat. My heart softened slightly as I listened. "'Why are you telling me this now?' My father looked up and centered his eyes on mine. It's part of my story. It's part of your story. I sat quiet, waiting for him to continue. Instead, Jonathan picked up where he left off. Jason didn't die from the mill disease, Britt. You weren't responsible. I felt a knot in my chest, which I didn't even know was there, release. His admission, his acknowledgment of what I already knew, took the wind from me. I was on the verge of tears. I'd craved for someone to validate what I knew. Then why did you make me, make everyone, make Isla believe that I was responsible? Do you know what I've gone through? Do you know what you've put me through? You put me through? Jonathan and my father both nodded but didn't say anything. I didn't understand. Rutherford spoke up next. We've all been through it. Maybe not in the way you have, but in some way we've all been tested. Tested? His words struck a chord in me. It reminded me of my conversation with Eamon, and I instantly remembered how he said that each sleeper had been tested. This meeting was finally starting to make sense to me. They were all sleepers. You were testing me? I asked rhetorically. My father spoke. We needed you to see for yourself what the world beyond the Ambit was like. James tried to tell you, but you weren't ready to hear it. When Chasen passed, we knew we had a small window of opportunity to push you, to force you. You'd shown signs of being ready, like when you agreed to hide the toy cars that James brought back for Chasen, and the Bible. And then when you took in Elsa's boy. Wait, the Bible? What about the Bible? Maris, who'd been sitting forward with his elbows on the table, sat back in his seat in astonishment. She doesn't know. He laughed at that. He seemed to be laughing at me as though I was naive about something. Know what? That book you have, Isla's book, my father said. What about it? James gave that to her. I nodded. I know that. Do you even know what a Bible is? Rutherford asked. I searched their faces for a clue. I wanted to answer differently, but the truth was I didn't know. I debated lying about it. Levi must have sensed my ignorance. After the crisis, there was a massive book burning. That book was the cause of it. God was the cause of it. God, I said. Rutherford seemed uncomfortable with that word, like I was cussing or something. Why, I asked. When you've seen what we have, all those people dying around you, your loved ones literally falling dead in front of you, it's hard to believe in a God that would allow that. After the crisis, the survivors were angry. They blamed him, Jonathan said sadly. They didn't blame him. The crisis disproved him. Everyone just got wise, and nobody could argue otherwise, so we burned the books and anything else that reminded us of that kind of mythology from before the crisis. Levi scowled. An inexplicable sadness came over me. My heart hurt. I knew what the words from the Bible had meant to Isla and Seth, and while I wasn't fully ready to admit that they meant something to me, I certainly didn't think that it was mythology. I guess it makes sense that your generation wouldn't know anything about God. I suppose it was our generation that tried to make sure of that, Maris replied. In the outside, even mentioning... That name is risky, Rutherford stopped and thought for a second. That's why your boy, what's his name again? Seth, Eamon piped in. Yeah, Seth caught their attention and they put out orders to have him picked up. When they couldn't find him, we knew you'd be in danger after you got back. The Underground has a serious problem with that book and anyone carrying on about it. But no one ever told us that there was a law against it. There ain't no law against it. Having a law against it is admitting that it exists. A law creates intrigue, interest. Then before you know it, the people who were happily compliant start wondering why they can't have one and what's in it. And then you've got an uprising on your hands. No, they can't have that. Better to just seek it out and squash the issue quietly. I've seen it done a number of times down there. Rutherford clarified people who were caught praying and found wearing crosses would come up missing. I remembered the cross from the cover of Isla's Bible. I knew it was a symbol of something, but I didn't know what exactly. It sparked a memory of another cross that I'd seen on that same night, the one on James's gravestone. Eamon had put a cross on the stone. I looked over at him and scanned his face. Perhaps he knew more about God and the Bible than he was letting on. Then I was reminded of the copy of the Bible that I found hidden in the floorboards of the farmhouse the same farmhouse that I found the picture of young Rutherford and little Eamon. Now I understood why it was hidden. Not everyone wanted to burn the book. We're getting off track, Levi redirected us. Maybe we should start at the beginning, Rutherford suggested, nodding toward my father again. My father took the cue. Rutherford, Maris, and I go back a ways. In fact, we go all the way back to a time before you were born. Lucida and I went to medical school together. She and your mother were best friends. My father smiled at, his at this memory. Actually, Lucita was the one that introduced us. We were all pretty close after that. His face sobered again as he continued, After your mother and I were married, we tried to start a family, but years went by and we found that we weren't able to get pregnant. My father's cheeks quivered slightly. Your mother had three miscarriages before we stopped trying." "'She was devastated, Britt. "'I would have given anything to help her, "'but I didn't know how, so I poured myself into my work. "'But my sisters, your sisters, Eloise and Quinn, were adopted,' he said. "'Adopted?' "'My father nodded. "'Your mother wanted children of our own, but I couldn't give them to her, "'so after a while we chose to adopt. "'But I wasn't,' I questioned further. "'My father shook his head. "'No.' I never gave up the idea that we would be able to conceive naturally, so I focused my medical research efforts on fertility. My father glanced over at Jonathan. Jonathan picked up on the cue and added, Your father and I met in 2074, and we had a common interest in infertility. We decided to open a private, very exclusive fertility clinic in addition to our normal general medical practices. You were a doctor, too? I asked. I wondered why I never knew that. My father and Jonathan both nodded. Yes, Jonathan and I partnered in the opening of a private fertility clinic. It was there that we experimented with. My father cleared his throat again and shot another glance over to Jonathan before continuing some unconventional methods in the hopes of finding other ways to enable conception. What kind of unconventional methods? We'll get to that, my father said, sipping from a teacup that was sitting in front of him. Jonathan took over the storytelling. By 2083, we'd made some extraordinary discoveries, putting us on the brink of finding a method to correct infertility altogether. Jonathan reached up and scratched his bald head. There were risks involved, my father added softly, risks that the United States Food and Drug Administration wouldn't allow us to take. Jonathan continued, but we disagreed. We were confident that those risks were unlikely, and even if they weren't, It wasn't enough to justify not moving forward with such an incredible discovery. My father and Jonathan seemed to have conflicting feelings on the work that they did. While my father was careful and quiet, explaining it, Jonathan beamed with pride and defended it. My father chimed in again. After many appeals and denials, we took matters into our own hands. He didn't make eye contact with me. We began running trials secretly. My father looked down at the table and then added, on human subjects. "'What happened?' I asked. "'It worked,' Jonathan said enthusiastically. "'My father looked up at me. "'It worked,' he repeated stoically. "'I was intrigued. So what then?' Mm. "'Then we tried again on another volunteer,' my father said, "'struggling to make eye contact still. "'And it didn't work. "'It seemed to take, but the fetus miscarried,' Jonathan said matter-of-factly. "'Did you try it again?' "'Jonathan nodded and exchanged glances with Maris. "'She miscarried four more times,' Maris added. "'Her body started to reject the fertility treatment, so we stopped trying,' my father spoke again. "'I looked around to see who was going to speak up next, but no one said anything. "'So?' I asked, confused by the sudden silence. "'We didn't let that stop us,' Jonathan said. "'We should have,' my father added, staring at Jonathan. "'They were almost arguing.' But we couldn't let it go. The treatment had worked, and for some reason, and and we were obsessed with figuring out why, my father stated. We used the same theories, but applied them in different degrees and variations to see if we could make it work again. Jonathan reached up and scratched his invisible hairline again. But we weren't able to continue our research. Did someone find out? My father shook his head no. We weren't able to continue our research because bigger issues were at play. What issues? "'That was in 2084, Jonathan finished. "'I understood what he meant by that. "'The crisis?' Jonathan nodded. "'You were born in the midst of the crisis,' my father said, looking at his hands. "'I saw something drip from his face. "'I understood his meaning now. "'It was my mother that you ran tests on, wasn't it?' "'He nodded without looking up. "'That's how you conceived me, isn't it?' "'Her little blessing,' he whispered, referring to the nickname my mother had for me. I swallowed hard. I missed her. I could tell that my father did too. I looked around the table at the faces of the other men. Rutherford was staring at me. How do you fit into all of this? I asked him directly. Rutherford smirked, well, that's a whole other story, I guess, isn't it? I didn't share his laugh. I only waited for him to answer me for real. The corner of Rutherford's mouth curled up. "'I fit into this because I knew Maris. "'He and I go all the way back to the MCC,' Rutherford said, "'looking at Maris and placing his hand on his shoulder. "'MCC, what's that?' "'Metropolitan Correction Center,' Maris said. "'Prison?' Yep. Rutherford said. "'Old Maris and I were cellmates. "'Who are you calling old?' Maris teased. "'I didn't wait for Rutherford to engage Maris's question. "'I stayed on track. "'Why were you in prison?' "'Rutherford's smile faded.' His eyes sobered. He glanced over at Eamon and then back at me. He glared at me. Several seconds passed while the we stared at each other down. I waited for the truth, and he held it hostage. It was Maris that, w- that broke the silence between us. Doesn't matter much now anyway. Point is, rather, Rutherford and I met your pops after all that, after the crisis, when there was no more need for prisons. There was need, Jonathan corrected him. There just wasn't any way of continuing to run them. "'Everything fell apart after the crisis.' "'Maris rolled his eyes. "'Anyway,' Rutherford jumped in, "'right, anyway, that's how I fit in the picture.' "'I turned my attention to Maris. "'Why were you in prison, Maris?' "'Maris smiled and laughed. "'I wasn't the gentleman back then that I am today. "'I knew he was teasing, but I didn't give him the courtesy of a smile.' "'Sometimes it's not about what you did, young lady,' Rutherford interrupted. "'Sometimes it's about what you're doing to make it right.' "'And sometimes it is about what you did,' I said. "'No one said anything. No one could argue with that point. "'Turning my attention to my father, I asked, "'What about Lucida?" "'Lucy?' Maris said. "'I wondered if they realized how much I knew about Lucida. "'She was pregnant with James at the time of the crisis, wasn't she?' "'Jamie?' Maris smiled. Yeah, she was, but she didn't know it yet. Did James's father die in the crisis? Maris shook his head no. Then where's his father? Who is he? No one knows, Maris finally said. What? What about Lucida? Lucida was single, my father said. But she wanted children, so she came to see me. And you ran trials on her too, I finished his sentence. My father nodded. And we didn't think that the treatment worked. She miscarried so many times. I looked at Maris. His eyes were set on the table in front of him, but he said she didn't figure out she was pregnant until after the crisis. So it worked. Yes, but, Jonathan started, but we didn't know that. Okay. They all seemed to be waiting for me to figure out what they were trying to say. We didn't know... "'until after the immunizations were given that year,' Maris added. "'Did she get the mill immunization that year?' Maris nodded. "'She got the mill immunization in 2084?' Maris nodded again. "'And she survived?' I asked in disbelief. Maris nodded a third time. "'But I didn't think there were survivors,' I asked rhetorically, "'because no one ever had any record of it,' Jonathan said." "'We were afraid that if anyone else found out about it, "'that she would be turned into a guinea pig for research. "'You turned her into a guinea pig,' I said to my father. "'You just didn't want anyone to find out what you'd done to her.' "'What he'd done to her?' Maris sniffed at me. "'He saved her life. "'Who knows what would have happened if—' "'He paused to regain composure. "'She agreed to it. "'She trusted and loved your father. "'She wanted a baby. "'She was willing to do whatever was necessary to have one.' We should be thanking him. You should be thanking him. James wouldn't have been here if it weren't for your old man. My father didn't say a word. I waited for him to say something, but he didn't comply. So what was it? I asked point blank. What was what? my father replied. What was the treatment, the unconventional methods you used? What were they? Jonathan stared at my father. My father was silent. Maris, what was it? Oh, heck, I don't know about all that stuff, but... "'Lucita trusted him, and when James wanted to know where he'd come from, she sent him to see your dad,' Maris gestured in my father's direction. "'Why would Lucita send him to you? I could have burnt holes in my father with my glare. "'Because I'm the only one who knew,' he finally said. "'What do you mean?' I asked, looking at Jonathan. "'You don't know?' Jonathan shook his head. "'I know we were creating hybrid embryos, part human, part animal. We called them chimeras.' "'That's it?' I was disgusted that he'd blindly taken such a risk. Levi, who seemed to be hearing all of this for the first time, cut in. That couldn't have been it. Scientists had been using hybrid embryos for years by that point. That wasn't new science. So what was it, I asked. Why aren't you answering? Because there isn't a simple answer, my father raised his voice in frustration. It isn't that easy. It's true that it was a hybrid human-animal embryo that we treated Lucida and your mother with, but... The source that we used, I've never spoken of. It's not, he trailed off. Fear was visible on him. What are you so afraid of? My father continued. The treatment I used was from the same technology that my father used when he co-founded the mill. Your father? He made me swear on my life to keep it protected. In the wrong hands, it could and did kill millions of people. What? I couldn't believe my ears. Your father? My grandfather was one of the co-founders of the mill? She doesn't know that, Aldam? Levi was shocked. Yes, my father, Aldam repeated. My father was Alexander Laddin. Chapter 26, The Fire Our last name is Laddin? My father nodded. I didn't know which one was harder to believe, that I was related to the same Alexander Ladin that Sale had told me about, or the fact that my father had used human-animal embryos to artificially create life, my life. My head was spinning. I looked around the table at the faces of the others, listening. No one else seemed surprised by this information. My life didn't turn out the way I thought it would, you know, my father said, still fidgeting with his fingers, which were laced together on the table. I thought when I went off to medical school that I was going to make a life for myself. I wanted to give the world something amazing like my father had. I never wanted to hurt anyone. I really didn't, he said. Then he scoffed at his own words, pointing out, but my father never did either. He had a good point. I got caught up. For the past 30 years, I've been hiding from what I've done. I've spent so much time trying to create life instead of just Instead of just being a husband to your mother and a father to your sisters, is that why you came to the ambit, to hide? My last name was Ladin, he corrected himself. Our last name is Ladin. That made sense to me. After the crisis, people wanted to kill us because of our last name. We had to go into hiding. I had a wife and a newborn baby to think of. The only only ones willing to take us in were the naturals, the same group that had protested and openly opposed the immunization that my family was responsible for. And they were right. We were out of line playing with life like that for all those years. When we joined the ambit, the founders agreed to keep our identity a secret. They wanted peace then, just like they do now, except... Over the years, their desire for peace and their unwillingness to accept any form of progress, any medicine, any technology, has created complacency. The ambit was supposed to be a safe place with rules and guidelines to help keep its inhabitants innocent, free from temptation to create and prolong life. It was never supposed to be a place where people gave up on life altogether. My old man used to say, when we stop learning, we start dying, Maris added. My father's face lit up. Exactly. And when James was here, he renewed hope in us. My father nodded toward Jonathan. He reminded us that men can still do amazing things, but within certain parameters. We could still have passion for helping people, but with an understanding for where our place in the universe was. The crisis was a reminder that we weren't meant to take or create life. We were meant to add to it, to find purpose in it. Jonathan was nodding his head. Maris and Rutherford both seemed as though they wanted to smile or clap or something. They were so enthused with my father's speech. We took James's ideas to the guiding authority, but they overruled anything that encouraged change. They were so rigid and set in their ways. We managed to convince them to let him go back and forth to other societies like the outside, but that was it. We hoped. James hoped that in time, they would see the error of their ways and loosen the reins they had on ambit citizens. The guiding authority was only meant to guide, not rule. But after 30 years, they became the standard, and their rigidness sucked the life out of this place. And while James never managed to convince them, he never lost hope. It infuriated him that the ambit wouldn't allow Chasen the medical attention that we all knew he needed, but he never quit. He didn't give up. My father stopped. He seemed ashamed of himself. But I did. My insides felt like they were releasing years of tension with my father after hearing his words. His explanation, his story, was beginning to make sense to me. Even after Eamon found me and told me of James' fate, I still didn't believe that we could do anything to change the way the world had come to be. That's why I never told you what happened to James. You and the children had already been through enough. I guess I felt like I was doing you a favor by keeping it from you. As long as you thought he was out there, I thought perhaps you had some hope, more than I did anyway. My father looked deep into my eyes, and for the first time in years, I found something between us. I found a broken man who wanted to protect me from what little he thought he could. So what changed? Why now? Why this renewed sense of hope? I felt like I could have asked a million more questions. My father glanced out of the corner of his eye toward the room where Isla slept. He thought hard for a second before answering. I've hidden in the ambit for all these years, hoping that my name and my past would fade away. But it's come back, and it's at our doorstep. I'm an old man now. I couldn't protect you the way I should have, and I can't do it now. All I can do is give you what's in here. My father tapped on his temple. Because this world is changing around us, and we can't stop it. They're looking for me, which means they're looking for you and for her. Who? Rutherford spoke up. The underground. The underground? The same underground that ordered James's assassination? Eamon nodded. Who are they? Like I said before, just because there weren't any prisons doesn't mean they weren't needed, Jonathan clarified. Confusion must have been evident on my face because Maris said, Originally, it was us. He pointed to himself and Rutherford, the inmates from the MCC. After the crisis, we were free to go. Who could stop us? And we really thought we were something else, didn't we? Rutherford smirked and shook his head. Metropolitan Correction Center, Eamon added. Suddenly, I remembered the signs on the parking platform in the outside. They were labeled MCC Guard. That must have been the Metropolitan Correction Center Guard parking structure the outside is below the prison isn't it i was finally putting it together a few of the men nodded so who runs the underground now i asked maris and rutherford runs it maris repeated yes who runs it we're not sure exactly back in the day after the crisis we all had a part in it but it's been 30 years and while some of us have mellowed out others have gotten worse "'There's a hierarchy for sure, but we don't know who's at the top anymore. "'They have an agenda all their own,' Rutherford declared. "'You work for the underground, and neither of you know who or how they operate?' "'Me,' Maris said, "'No, I got out of that line long ago. "'At first I was on it, but when I met Lucida, she taught me better. "'I kept my head down, kept to myself. "'What about you two? I asked Eamon and Rutherford specifically. "'They were silent. "'You answered to him.' "'I asked Eamon, pointing to Rutherford. "'He nodded. "'Who did you answer to?' I addressed Rutherford. "'Rutherford smiled. "'Well, up until the blood mission, I got my orders straight from Gunner. "'Gunner? His name made my stomach turn. "'Rutherford nodded. "'And he was as dirty as they come, probably killed as many people as the mill. "'That's why I asked Buck to see to it that he didn't come back from the blood mission.' When you all returned without him, I was relieved. I'd been looking for a way to off that old buzzard for years. But under the watchful eye of the underground, I hadn't been able to manage it and keep my cover. And what about Zale? Rutherford's eyes widened. Zale? I looked to Maris, but he looked down. He's not the highest on the food chain, but he's definitely involved with them, Rutherford added. He's an assassin, Eamon snarled. I was bothered by this idea. I had a hard time believing it. So that's why you asked Buckley to make sure he didn't come back from the blood mission either, just like Gunner. What? This was news to Maris. Rutherford obviously hadn't expected me to bring that up. He nodded hesitantly. I did. You son of a— Maris cussed at Rutherford under his breath as he dug around in his shirt pocket for another white stick and a match. "'Come on now, Maris, you know it was necessary,' Rutherford explained. "'I told you he was just using her and her schoolgirl crush on him "'as an excuse to be on that mission, "'and we had to make sure he didn't return with anything that they needed.' "'But he did,' Eamon added. "'Eamon pulled the vial of blood from his bag and laid it on the table. "'Exactly,' Rutherford said. "'My father's eyes widened at the sight sight of the vial. "'They sent him for blood?' Yes, and if it weren't for Eamon here, it may have fallen into the wrong hands. So, yeah, I asked Buckley to stop him, Rutherford added. Maris puffed on his cigarette. He refused to make eye contact with any of us. I was embarrassed that they all knew I had feelings for Zale. I felt so foolish. And I hate to be the one to say it, but Zale knows where the ambit is now, so as long as he's alive, we ain't safe. None of us, Rutherford continued. You still want to kill him? "'I spit the words out before I thought about how they would sound. "'I hoped that Maris would have interrupted, but he sat silent. "'Brit,' Eamon tried to stop my outburst. "'No, young lady, we want you to,' Rutherford stated boldly. "'Then there's no way he'll see it coming.' "'I sat back in my chair, stunned by their request. "'I searched the faces of the other men at the table. "'I waited for someone to object. "'If you wanted him dead, why didn't you just do it yourself "'when we came back from the mission?' Rutherford all but laughed. Don't be so dense. We were being watched. We couldn't very well appear to be working for the underground and off one of their assassins under their eye. Now could we? We had to get you all out of there, get him out from underneath their protection. So you let Buckley break us out so that you could get him away from the outside just so you could kill him? I shot a look at Eamon. I didn't understand why he hadn't told me that. Don't get it twisted, young lady. We were looking out for all y'all. But, yeah, we needed to make sure. It, we needed to make it look like you were all running, and we knew that he would go along with it to keep an eye on you all for the underground. Well, you, you can't just expect me to. I started. Let me talk to him. Maybe I can help him see that. I stopped. Eamon closed his eyes and dropped his head. I'm not a killer, I nearly yelled at him. I hated that he seemed to think that it was my feelings that were getting in the way. Then I'll do it. "'he said quietly as he rose from his seats. "'I stood up to, "'Do what? "'No, you won't. "'Maris, aren't you going to say something? "'He's your son.' "'Maris, Maris's head rose. "'Dark shadows circled his sad eyes. "'We're on the losing end of a battle "'that we can't even explain. "'We don't know who we're fighting, "'but as much as I hate to admit it, "'the evidence is undeniable.' "'Maris motioned to the vial of blood on the table. "'Then he removed himself and walked to the fireplace.' He rested his arm on the mantle and put his head down on it. I felt my mouth gaping open with their resolution for Zale's guilt. They were his judge, jury, and executioner. There has to be a reasonable explanation here. He isn't what you think he... I tried to convince them. Brit, Eamon said, but I ignored him. You haven't seen the side to him that I have. He isn't Brit, Eamon raised his voice. It startled me, and I went quiet. Eamon stared at me. He's not James. You can't make him be James. My blood boiled. I reached up and slapped him as hard as I could across the face. His jaw tightened, but his eyes never wavered. I felt my chest heave in and out with anger. My father interjected, haven't you seen enough? Do you still not believe what we're trying to tell you? If he makes it back to the underground somehow and tells them that I'm here, they'll come for us. Why? What do you have that they want? They want to know how he and Lucida survived the mill immunization in 2084. Levi spoke for the first time in minutes. I stopped and looked at my father. You were immunized and survived? But how? My father returned my gaze. He'd been hiding for more, than, for more reasons than his last name. We all heard footsteps run up my father's porch. Within seconds, Eamon had his gun unholstered and pointed at the door. "'Mr. Oldham! Mr. Oldham!' the boy yelled from outside. He started rapping violently on the door. "'A fire! There's a fire!' "'What? Where?' Jonathan shoved past Eamon and threw the door open. "'At the ambit crossing, the big tree is on fire! and the cottages!' the boy yelled, panting. "'Get everyone to the schoolhouse,' Jonathan demanded, demanded. I bolted past Jonathan and Eamon, but he was close on my heels.' A funnel of orange and black rose up into the dark sky. It wasn't a small fire. It was an unnatural disaster. As we ran down the mall, people emerged from their cottages looking up, pointing to the smoke. We dodged folks left and right, trying to get around them. Some people ran toward the other end of the mall, while we ran straight toward the flames. On the lane nearest the ambit crossing, three cottages and farms were on fire. The families were standing outside crying and screaming, still wearing their nightclothes. "'Monitors!' I yelled to Eamon as we ran toward the shelter tree. "'I was scared to even think of that. "'My only consolation was the idea that Seth was safe with Cinder. "'Maybe,' Eamon panted as he yelled back. "'Maybe not.' "'At the end of the lane, I squinted to see beyond the smoke and ash to the ambit crossing. "'I saw the blackness of the shelter tree. "'Figures were standing away from the tree nearest one of the vehicles. "'The other vehicle was gone. "'Seth, Fairchild, and Buckley were there.' Buckley was nursing his arm with a rag of some sort. Seth had Nanny in his arms. Cinder paced back and forth at the ambit crossing, waiting for us to pass over it. Is everyone okay? I yelled as we closed in on their location. Seth put Nanny down on the ground, and she ran to me alongside of him. He was crying. Where were you? He screamed hysterically. I didn't know where you were. I thought that you were in the tree. I looked up to see the hammock where we were sleeping was burning. I held him against my chest. I'm here, I'm here, I said, wiping his face and hair. I'm okay. I'm so sorry. I'm okay. He sniffed and squeezed me. I held him as we watched the bottom of the tree smolder. It was burning alive from the bottom up. The smoke touched the tallest tips on the tree, which the flames hadn't reached yet. I could feel its pain as it cracked and popped. I've been warmed and fed by fires all of my life, and this sort of burn was different from anything I'd ever seen. The lowest tips of the tree were flaming, but the interior branches and the trunk were barely burning. The wood seemed to scream in the blaze, like a human would if just their fingers and toes were burning. I was caught up in the raw emotion. I felt its pain, but somehow I knew that the life that it contained was far stronger than the fire that tried to kill it. No, don't touch it. I'm fine. I heard Buckley yell at Fairchild. I'd almost forgotten that he was hurt. "Buckley, are you okay?" I asked. His arm was raw with pink and swollen flesh. He squinted and clenched his jaw. "Yeah, I'm fine." "He's not okay," Fairchild cried. His arm was on fire. "Let me see," I said approaching him. He lifted his lifted the rag revealing the tender skin. "I'm okay, really. I had my coat on and it's burn all to heck, but I'm okay." All right, let's see what we have to take care of that, I said, pulling my satchel around to look inside. I didn't have any ointment, but I did have a bottle of water to clean the wound. Are you sure you're okay? Eamon asked. Yeah, I'm sure. Here, Seth slammed the vehicle door behind him. Here's another jacket for you to wear. Thanks, Buckley said, and then carefully slid the jacket over his arm. What happened? Fairchild asked. She was panicked. We don't know, Eamon said. Where's Zale? He's not here. He's not here. We haven't seen him, Buckley said. Eamon looked at me. The other vehicle's gone. My heart sunk. Sale was gone. Where were you guys? I asked Buckley and Fairchild, who'd stood holding each other while watching the fires burn. We were sleeping. We woke up to the smell of smoke, Fairchild answered. Buckley? Eamon said. Yeah, we didn't see anything. We were in there, he said, pointing to the tent off in the distance. "'What should we do?' I asked. "'Buckley, you get Brit, Fairchild, and Seth back to the farmhouse,' Eamon directed. "'No, I'm not going anywhere without Isla.' "'Fine, just Fairchild and Seth, then. "'We'll come to you once we figure out what's going on,' Eamon ordered Buckley. "'Buckley nodded. Seth screamed. "'No, I don't want to go without you!' "'Seth, you have to. It isn't safe here,' I cried, hugging and kissing him. "'No!' Seth was adamant. "'Buckley,' Eamon gestured to Buckley. He came over and pulled Seth from me. "'Come on, buddy.' "'No!' he fought against Buckley to hold on to my waist. "'I don't want to leave you!' "'I'm sorry, you have to,' I said, pulling his hands from me. His fingers gripped mine. "'Please don't make me—I don't want to go without you!' Seth cried, tears streaking his dirty face. Buckley separated him from me, kicking and screaming all the way to the vehicle. "'I'm sorry!' I yelled after him. "'No, no, no! I don't want to go! "'Please, please don't make me!' Seth yelled. "'We're supposed to go get Isla!' I turned my face from him. I heard a car door shut, and then another. I looked up. Seth was in the back seat crying. Fairchild was doing her best to comfort him. Buckley picked up Nanny and put her in the vehicle, too. Then he gave a slight wave and climbed into the car. The ignition started, but after a second, the engine puttered and the car stalled. Buckley started it again and again, but with no success. What's going on? I asked Demon. Buckley stuck his head out of the car and yelled, There's no gas! No gas Eamon yelled. Zale stole the gas? We ran over to the vehicle. Open the back, we'll get the gas can, Eamon said as we passed Buckley's window. We opened the back and the back we opened the back of hatch of the vehicle, Eamon cussed. He took it Zale took it? I said in disbelief. Eamon shut the hatch of the of the car. He looked over the top of the vehicle at the fires that now spread to the entire lane of cottages and farms. "'He didn't take it. He used it,' Eamon said. "'He used it to set the fires.' "'I gasped. "'What? He wouldn't do that!' Eamon looked at me. "'Are you sure?' "'I didn't answer. I wasn't sure. "'At least it wasn't monitors,' Eamon added. "'Buckley, Fairchild, and Seth barreled out of the car. "'Seth ran and hugged me. "'Thank you,' he said as if I had something to do with him staying. "'I followed Eamon to the front of the vehicle.' "'The lowest branch on the shelter tree cracked and dropped to the ground, carrying flames with it. "'We have to do something,' I demanded. "'I don't know what we can do,' Eamon said. "'Look!' Seth said. "'Cinder!' "'Cinder was rearing back under her hind legs, propped up on her tail. "'She exemplified the true meaning of a monitor lizard, maintaining the posture of a monitor. "'Once in position, her massive wings unfolded from her backside. "'She shook the ground with a screech as she began flapping them violently.' The wind from her wings picked up and within moments she created a gust of wind strong enough to extinguish the shelter tree's smolder. We all cheered and yelled, jumping and clapping. Cinder dropped back down to all fours, her wings closed behind her. Let's go, Eamon waved, running toward the fires over the Ambit Crossing, and we all began running with him. I turned to ensure Seth was keeping up with us. Stop everyone looked, stopped, and looked back. Again, Cinder paced impatiently at the Ambit Crossing. "'What's she doing?' Fairchild added. "'Why isn't she following us?' Buckley asked. Eamon and I looked at one another. "'Come on, Cinder!' Seth yelled at her. "'Cinder puffed hot air at us. "'She was disturbed that she couldn't follow. "'Fairchild, why is she doing that?' Eamon asked. "'I don't know,' she yelled in frustration. "'Maybe there's something on the ground that she can't cross.' "'Behind us, we could hear the screams of the Ambit's residents "'as their homes burnt one by one.' What do we do? Buckley asked. I exhaled a long, hard breath. There's nothing we can do. Well, we can't just stand here and watch either, Fairchild cried. She's right. Fairchild, take Seth back and stick close to Cinder. Buckley, come with me and Britt. We'll make sure no one else is hurt, Eamon barked orders at everyone. Fairchild agreed. She and Seth headed back toward the ambit crossing. Buckley, Eamon, and I ran toward the ambit. Chapter 27, The Cottage As we ran back toward the ambit, Eamon and Buckley jumped right in, helping helping to corral livestock and direct folks towards the other end of the mall. I didn't stop with them. I bolted toward the furthest end of the mall. On my way, I passed Levi. I did little more than acknowledge him. I kept running toward the lane on the mall nearest the child wellness office. The fires hadn't reached the small cottage that I once called home as of yet, but I knew it wouldn't be long before they did, and I had only a short window of opportunity to to bid it and the memories it contained farewell. The step on the front porch squealed with the same old creak that it always had as I approached the door. A flood of bitter and sweet memories filled to the rim of my eyelids, and tears balanced there. Breathing deep, I reached for the doorknob and pushed it open. Darkness left the interior of the cottage as cold as and dry as the fireplace that had once warmed it. I walked toward it, stopping only briefly to caress the top of the rocking chair I remembered reclining in, a thick layer of dust collected on my fingertip. No one had sat in it since I had. The mantle of the fireplace displayed Chasen's wood knickknacks, also untouched, just as they'd always been. Surging emotions shook my hands as I touched each of them. There was a story behind them all. Memories of Chasen filled me, and I laughed out loud. Tears sprung from my eyes, and for once, I wasn't ashamed of them, because he was worth crying for. I took a quick inventory of them, the man, the woman, the child, the dog, the horse, the cart, and the tree. All of his finished creations were there, but it made me wonder where the unfinished one had gone. It was a goat. I remembered it lying on the floor near the woodpile on the day I found Chasen face down in a pool of his blood. More tears ran down my face. I took the knickknacks and stored them in my satchel. My bed was made neatly on the other side of the room, and I found my way to it. Only fond memories waited for me there. This was the place that my children were conceived in a passionate entanglement with James. The handmade wood of the headboard even carried a deep scuff from that night's rendezvous. No one but James and I ever knew what had caused the scratch on the wood. I smiled, barely remembering the night's adventures and its incredible rewards. My fingers smoothed over the stitching on the purple and white quilt, bringing thoughts of my mother. She'd sewn it for me for my tenth birthday. The underside still carried her name. I flipped the corner of the blanket over, revealing it, Genevieve. I pulled it from the bed and folded it to take with me. The sheets that wrapped our mattress were white with little pink flowers on them. I smiled, remembering the children hiding under them as I used to make our bed. Chasen especially loved to be covered in them. He would laugh and giggle as I layered the blankets on top and then pretended that I couldn't find him. I peeled the top sheet off of the bed. A small circular stain waited for me as I exposed the bottom sheet. I remembered the origin of it being from the night that Chasen had coughed up blood years and years ago. The sheet had never come clean of it. I thought of the night that James and I had lain in this very bed listening to Isla sing to chasten. I recalled the conversation about getting medicine from the outside. I found myself scowling at the naked bed. It was just a bed, but it held so many memories of my family. Mother, a voice said softly from the doorway behind me. I sucked in a puff of air at the sound of her sweet voice. In the eleven years of being her mother, I had never heard her utter my name so lovingly. Even the first time she ever spoke the word paled in comparison to this. I turned. Isla. She stepped into the room and within seconds she was wrapping me in her arms. Mother, you're back! I I cried with her. I buried my face in her neck, breathing in her smell and taking note of the weight she'd added since I had last held her like this. My sweet girl, I whispered, I missed you so much. "'I knew you would be here,' she whispered back at me. "'I knew you were here when I found the book.' "'I kissed the side of her face and then nuzzled in the nape of her neck again, inhaling her presence. "'Are you okay?' I sat her down on the floor and stooped down to look at her face. "'I pushed her hair behind her ears. "'A smudge of black dust had settled on her cheek. "'I wiped at it, leaving a bigger trail of dirt from my own soiled hands. "'Smiling, I examined her from head to toe,' "'She wasn't the little girl I remembered. "'She was a young woman now. "'Her body had blossomed some since I'd last seen her. "'She was wearing her long green nightgown with white lace on the edge. "'The collar of her nightdress was buttoned all the way up. "'Her black boots were poking out from under the bottom of it. "'I am now,' she replied. "'Where's Seth?' I smiled again, "'wishing that Seth had been there to hear the concern in her tone for him.' He's here, too. He's at the at crossing right now. Good. Again, she threw her arms around my neck and squeezed me hard. I missed you. I have so much I need to tell you. I loved her enthusiasm to see me. She was not at all the stubborn girl that I remembered scolding me. She was happy to see me. She was relieved and excited. What changed? Of all the ways I imagined our reunion playing out, this was not it. The wonder and delight in her eyes inspired me. I had so much I needed to tell her, too. I said the first thing that came to my mind, the thought that had haunted me most in the months since I'd last seen her face to face. I'm so sorry, I said, taking her face in my hands. The guiding authority sent me away because they thought I'd used medicine to help chase them. They were wrong. I didn't. Isla's eyes narrowed on mine like she was confused by my admission. I continued, but I should have. Her eyes widened again with surprise. It's not okay. I thought I didn't have a choice, but I did. I was a coward. I let him down, but I promise you from here on out I'll always fight for what's best for you, for you and Seth both. I fell to my knees and hugged her around her waist, resting my head on her chest. Please forgive me. I didn't give her a chance to reply before I continued. I'm taking you away from the ambit now. I don't know where we're going to go, but there's so much more than the ambit. I pulled back and looked at her face. Does any of what I'm saying make sense? Isla nodded. She took my face in her hands. Suddenly, I felt like I was the child and her the parent. I knew you would pass, she whispered. Chills ran down my neck and spread through my body. Pass, I reiterated. Her smile grew. I hope you're not angry with me. Angry with you? Why would I be angry? Angry. I felt like laughing. I was worried that she would be angry with me. "'Because I told them to send you away?' I was astounded. "'What? You told who that?' Isla's tone was so serious. "'Papa and Jonathan. At first they didn't believe me, but I told them you were ready for trial by fire. I knew once you'd seen it for yourself, you'd know what to do, and you'd come back. Didn't Papa tell you that it was my idea?' I rested back on my bottom, deep in thought over her confession. "'Are you angry?' she asked. I shook my head. "'No, of course not. I'm just stunned. "'I had no idea that you—' "'I didn't know how to finish my own sentence. "'I didn't know how to describe her. "'How did you know I'd come back?' "'Isla's face relaxed some, and joy replaced the worry in her eyes. "'I've been having dreams about you. "'Not just you, but Seth, too—' I don't know how to explain it, but I just knew. Do you think that's weird? I shook my head. No, I said. Off in the distance, a voice yelled. It broke my concentration and shook me back to reality of the situation around us. We have to get out of here. We need to get to the schoolhouse, I said urgently. Isla nodded, but first I have to get something. She ran to the ladder that led to the upper loft of the cottage. A second later, she reappeared, climbing back down it. Okay, she affirmed. Then, hand in hand, we looked over the room once more. Isla squeezed my hand and tugged me toward the door. Before pulling it closed, I lingered in it for a moment. Another deep breath, and I pulled the door shut. We made our way to the mall. People were wandering all over. Few seemed to know what to do to help. Maris was standing in their midst, trying to direct them. Take your families to the schoolhouse, he was yelling. Take your livestock down by the lake. Maris, what can I do, I asked. Eamon and Buckley are on the other side of the schoolhouse. You can help them. I nodded and then turned to Isla. Stick with me, okay? She nodded obediently. Together we found our way around the schoolhouse. Just as Maris said, Eamon and Buckley were there barking orders to the crowd around them. Then, if we all line up, we can pass the buckets one by one to the schoolhouse, Eamon finished. Does anyone have any questions? Buckley yelled out. An ambit man in the crowd did. Are you sure that will work? Buckley replied. Fire doesn't burn wet wood. If we get the schoolhouse wet enough, the fire won't be able to burn it. Any other questions? I was impressed with Buckley's leadership. No other questions rose from the crowd. Okay, then I need women and children to follow me down to the lake. Men, follow Eamon. Everyone can help, but the men will be the closest to the fires. If we work together, we can save the schoolhouse, Eamon encouraged the crowd. And with that, the gathering split just as they'd been ordered i found eamon through the crowd what can i do help the others pass the buckets of water up here he answered from the look and sound of it the world was ending there was crying there was fear there was confusion we watched as time seemed to slow and flames engulfed the ambit one house at a time ash and smoldering flecks of orange filled the air Hours passed while we worked together in an assembly line, passing bucket after bucket of water to the schoolhouse. In that time, I saw more raw raw emotion rise from the ambit people than I had ever witnessed. Perhaps it was because they were all losing something in the fire, or perhaps it was their fear of what the next day would hold. I understood their pain and fear because I knew how scary life without the security of the ambit would be for them, but for me... There was an odd sense of hope and freedom that rose with those ashes. Because at least at the end of today, no one could pretend that this didn't matter. No one could pretend like this was normal. They would have to start again. They would have to care for one another tomorrow. They would have to feel something again. Then I understood. Like a ton of bricks dropping on me, I finally understood the reasons for which I had been banished. I understood the reason why my own daughter had encouraged my devastation. She was forcing me to feel something, to do something. I pitied the ambit for their suffering, but I rejoiced for them because this was their trial by fire. Tomorrow, they would have to choose to either lie down and die or get up and fight. There was no more middle ground for them to hide. Chapter 28, Broken Glass. Fourteen is a hard age for a little girl. Most girls worry about puberty knocking at the door and the awkward lessons on anatomy and cycles, but we can't all be so lucky. At fourteen, I was mourning my mother. I remember the day my mother passed as if it was a nightmare that I was doomed to relive. From time to time, terrifying pictures and memories would plague my mind before I had time to will them away. Each one was the same, the blood and bone panic and fear, and the look on her face as the light faded from her eyes. I don't remember crying and screaming. I don't even remember her last words to me or the events of the day up until that point. I do remember the book I was reading when the men burst through our door, and I do remember the smell of her blood as it dribbled and pooled on the floor under her. The part I remember most, though, was the haunting smile she had on her face her midsection was mangled in a farming accident my father and the other men tried to control the bleeding but i could feel the doubt in the air my father screamed at me to leave the room instead i froze clenching my book my mother's eyes found me through the men huddled around her she stared straight through me her fingers twitched as she tried to raise her arm and reach for me but i couldn't get close to her i didn't want to get close to her I didn't want to see her wounds or blood. Instead, I watched her reach for me desperately, beckoning me to come to her side. Even in that moment, at 14 years old, I knew the bitter reality of the ambit. She wasn't going to survive. And instead of running to her side and crying over her, I only watched the morbid scene that played out in front of me. As her chest took the last few gulps of air in, my father begged for her to fight for her life. My father screamed and cried over her. My father demonstrated the last ounce of humanity in him at that moment. And in the end, her eyes faded, but her smile remained. That was the only day in my life that I remember seeing my father cry. He sobbed over my mother, holding her limp body in his arms. He kissed her pale lips and wiped her hair from her face. I remember the blemish of blood that he left on her forehead. I melted to the floor and sat silently, watching him embrace her for the last time. I don't know if he was even aware of my presence. He'd ordered me out of the room, but in that moment, I don't think my insubordination would have crossed his mind. The others that had tried to revive her left us to be alone with her body. No one acknowledged me or my feelings, but I remember being grateful for that. Brit, do you know about this? Buckley's question caught me off guard, breaking my train of thought. I didn't answer. I wasn't sure what he was talking about. So let me get this straight, Buckley continued. You were a sleeper for all this time. Why didn't you tell me? He was trying to understand why his father and Maris were in the ambit. I didn't know which side you fell on. You acted loyal to the underground. I I couldn't risk you turning me over to them, Rutherford clarified. But when you were against me, or thought you were going against me to save your friends, well... "'Then I knew it was time. "'I only did what you asked me to because I wanted to make you—' "'Buckley didn't have to finish his sentence. "'We all knew what he was trying to say. "'Rutherford put his hand on his shoulder and nodded. "'And I am, son, I am,' Buckley half smiled. "'Where's Levi?' I asked. "'Rutherford looked at me and then turned to look at my father. "'He must be inside with the others.' "'He's probably off trying to figure out what the heck happened,' Maris added. "'What did happen?' Rutherford asked me as if I knew. "'I don't know,' I shrugged, confused, why he was asking me. "'Yes, you do,' Buckley snapped at me. "'I focused my eyes on him, standing my ground. "'No, I don't.' "'Rutherford looked to Buckley and then back at me. "'He was waiting for an explanation. "'My father sat on the step of the schoolhouse, holding his face in his hands. He was silent. Eamon had removed his shirt and was using it to clean his hands and face. The night was dark and the ashen smoke made things darker, but I could still make out the shiny, smooth structure of his black body and face. Zale happened, Eamon said matter-of-factly. I shot a look to him. I hated the idea of Zale being responsible for the chaos around us. That's what I thought, Rutherford grunted. I looked to Maris, who stood with his arms crossed, leaning up against the outside of the schoolhouse. He wasn't looking at me. Maris, I waited for him to offer, some reason why his son wouldn't have done what they were accusing him of. Maris turned his head and looked at me. He didn't say anything. After a second his eyes dropped to the ground in front of him, his his thoughts on the matter became clear. Really? You really think he's capable of this? I asked Maris sincerely. I was hoping someone else would help me defend him. The possibility of it just didn't make sense to me. Maris's eyes looked up again. He shrugged his shoulders reluctantly. He looked around at the group of men like there was no point in saying anything in defense of Zale. Finally, he spoke, If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it probably ain't a chicken. (laughs) How can you say that? He's your son. You think he could do this? I was upset. I motioned to the fires that settled behind me. You think he could do this? Maris didn't respond. Doesn't really matter, does it? Eamon asked. He was bothered by how I tried to defend Zale. I seemed to be alone in doubt. Of course it matters, I said under my breath. Okay, then what do you think? Buckley joined in. Let's just review here, Britt. Zale's the one who had the vial of blood. You and I both saw him take it. Zale's from the outside, and he has a reputation for only doing what's best for him. He doesn't care about anyone but himself. That's not true. He cares about me. I didn't care if they thought I was defending him because I had feelings for him. I looked at Eamon. He may not have liked my point, but he certainly couldn't deny that Zale had feelings for me, too. "'What about you?' I said, pointingly to to Buckley. "'What about me?' Buckley responded. "'You have a history with the underground, and we all know you hate Zale.' "'I paused to think for a moment. "'And up until a few days ago, your own father didn't know where your loyalties were. "'How do we know you didn't start the fires?' "'Rutherford scowled at me. "'I didn't really think Buckley had anything to do with the fires, but I was making a point. "'I'm just saying Zale is as likely to have done this as you are.' You raise just as many suspicions as he does, so why aren't we questioning you? Because he's here, Eamon yelled at me. Zale isn't, and neither is the other vehicle. How much more proof do you need? Whether I liked it or not, Eamon had a point. I couldn't explain it, but I still couldn't believe that Zale was guilty. He continued, I don't know what you're trying to prove anyway, Brit. He's not what you think he is. He's not. He's not James. This was twice now that Eamon had made the point. And made me, had made that point, and it made me just as angry now as it did the first time. I was grateful that Isla was not within earshot of the conversation. She was in the schoolhouse helping calm the children. And neither are you, I pointed my finger at him in, in disdain. Who the heck is James? Buckley said stupidly. No one answered. We aren't accomplishing anything with this, my father finally spoke. He's right, Maris said. I retracted my finger from Eamon's face. I scowled at him and then turned away. "'What about a monitor?' Maris offered. "'It could have been a fire breather.' "'That doesn't make sense,' Buckley said. "'Not unless monitors make a habit of using gasoline to set fires, "'then run like cowards away from their food.' I sat daggers at Buckley with my eyes. I hadn't missed the implication. "'How would you know what happened? "'I thought you were asleep.' "'I was,' Buckley replied.' I'm surprised you didn't just. Sorry, start again. I'm surprised you didn't sleep right through it, Rutherford said. You could sleep through anything. I thought back to the night at the hospital when I tried to remove the shotgun from Buckley's hands and accidentally smacked him in the face with my satchel. He was a hard sleeper, for sure. A vengeful smile spread across my face at the thought of it. I would have loved to smack him in the face with something right now. Well, it's a dang good thing that Fairchild was there to wake you up, I taunted him. "'cause I sure wouldn't have. "'What's your problem?' Buckley stepped towards me. "'Back up!' I yelled in his face, shoving him in the chest. "'Is there something you want to say to me, Brit?' Buckley yelled at me. Eamon stepped in between us. "'That's enough,' my father ordered. "'Stop arguing. It doesn't matter what happened. "'What matters is what we're going to do next.' "'We fell silent. My father rose from the step. "'There's a lot of scared, confused people in there.' They've lost their homes, their belongings, and everything they've ever known, and you two are bickering like little kids about who did what. Buckley, your chest, Eamon spoke up. Buckley looked down at his jacket. A red blood stain was spreading on his chest. What the, he cussed. What happened, Rutherford approached for a closer look. I don't know, he touched the spot on his chest, feeling for a wound. For a second, I thought I'd actually hurt him. It's your jacket," Rutherford said, pulling the flap of the jacket open. Buckley peeled it off. Sure enough, his shirt carried a smaller version of the same red stain. Buckley felt around inside of the jacket pocket. Ouch! He quickly pulled his hand back from the pocket. His finger was bloodied. That hurt. My stomach dropped as my mind raced faster than I could formulate words. I suddenly recognized the jacket. That's Zale's jacket. Fierce. Fear coursed my veins as I tried to spit out the words that were jumbled in my head. Whose? Eamon said. That's Zale's jacket, I said again. So? Eamon said. Buckley reached into the pocket again and pulled out a piece of glass from it. That's the vial! That's the vial of blood! What? Eamon said. It can't be. I have the vial. Just then, a shriek came through the air like a warning sign flashing in my mind. "'What was that?' my father asked. "'A hunting call,' Rutherford exclaimed. "'Hunting call? For what?' my father said, confused. "'No, not a hunting call,' Buckley said. "'That's Cinder.' "'Cinder?' Eamon asked. "'Before I could think of anything else, "'I finally spit out the words that I was trying to find. "'The vial of blood was in Zell's jacket the whole time. "'He didn't hand it over to the underground. "'It was a fake. She gave him a fake.' "'What?' Buckley said, puzzled. But that means, Fairchild, I screamed and began running back toward the ambit crossing. Fairchild set the fire. She's from the underground. She had the vial of blood. Where are you going? Eamon called after me. Another screech pierced the air. Seth, I screamed back.